Welcome to Wide Open Day. I'm Heather Kelly, and this is the podcast where I get to speak with people about what it means to them to make the most of their day and how they do it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, wonderful listener. This is episode number eight of Wide Open Day, and I'm excited to bring you a conversation with my dear friend, musician, composer, and executive director, Menon Dworka. Just before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that Wide Open Day is now available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Yay! So please subscribe. Okay, now for this episode, Menon Dworka, as I mentioned, has been a director and executive director of music and cultural organizations in New York and in Toronto. And he's also a composer and a writer. He's been an advisor and thought leader in interesting forums within the cultural sector. And he's currently on the board of directors of the Canadian Opera Company and works as executive director of Soundstreams. And, okay, how cool is this? Menon has been a guest on Sesame Street. Now, in this episode, Menon shares his thoughts about meaningful connections with people, showing up fully, the art of deep listening, team building, and his approach to leadership. I'm so happy to bring you this episode with Menon Dworka and welcome him to our Wide Open Day. Thank you, Heather. It's great to be here. So, Menon, what does it mean to you to make the most of your day? Well, you know, when I think about this question from the point of leadership, I think that my initial responses will be around productivity, maximization, or something else. But when I really think about my career over its entirety, I think that the making the most of the day means to have as many authentic connections within the day as possible. And, you know, I don't mean that kind of flippantly as that, oh, every day should be filled with fun, friendship-related chats, and then we work around those things. I really feel both for myself and for the teams that I work with, the biggest impediment for any kind of work is not feeling connected, is not feeling rooted in the space that you're in, and not feeling rooted to the people around you. In fact, I think that the probably the worst work that we all do is when we're in spaces where we feel nervous and trepidatious about judgment from other people or if we're unclear about what the tasks are. So what I've been doing you know, over the last 20 years or so, and I think in the beginning it was much more intuitive, that I would build these days around having very fulsome connections with the people I, I worked with and uh, being very you know, authentic and and not kind of changing my persona that much from a work environment to a friend environment. And, you know, when I was younger, sometimes would have some fun results and sometimes some some not so fun results. But I think as I've gotten older and part of my journey has been to, you know, really do work on myself with friends and with introspection, but also therapists to really figure out how I can show up fully in a space so that the clutter and the distractions around us that prevent us from doing our best work are minimized as much as possible. And so that when we come together, we're actually bringing 
all of our tools, all of our knowledge, all of our experience so that we can make the best decisions. And if I can do that once in a day, I could think, well, you know, I not only made it happen for the other person, uh, I made it happen for myself. And that, that's a good marker of us being good stewards of each other and good human beings. I have to say that with my current team now at Soundstreams, every day at 9 o'clock we get on Zoom and we just make sure that we see each other and we're grounded. And if there's any anxiety for the day before, we just squash that. And if there's any trepidation about the day coming, we address it right away so that we can deliver at the highest possible level and that we are really conscious of the fact that there's support for us because I think there are lots of models out there and certainly at certain other points of my life, spiking the ball at very highly functioning, independent thinker and achiever. Well, there's some space for that. I think having the group success is so much more fulfilling that I'm really focused on that these days. I'm, I'm really focusing on, on how I can just make space for other people to feel seen and heard and that we belong together. I love that idea of, you know, authentic and meaningful connection and that being focused on the feeling of feeling connected and feeling rooted. And when you were first saying that, I was envisioning one-on-one basis. You also speak of the meaningful, authentic connection between a group. And I suspect that as a leader, there must be both psychological things that you need to do in order to make that happen, as well as really practical things. How does that work for you mentally or psychologically, as well as in a real practical techniques approach? Well, I think part of this comes out of having a background that is not socially or economically sequestered. And that might seem like I'm going off on a tangent here, but the truth is, is that if you come from a family like mine, I can, you know, come from this immigrant family that immigrated to Toronto when I was six months old from Guyana. And at that point in time, there wasn't really any very tiny community of immigrants here that when people started to come over, when people were sponsoring people and our family started to grow, it's pretty clear to me that the education and opportunities that I was afforded by my family moving here were certainly not afforded to uh, my extended family. And so you could have a dinner or a get-together in which the range of people that were there would be someone like me who was, might have been a, a you know PhD student at the time to someone who was literally and functionally illiterate but they might be a senior and an elder in the family. But once you have this broad mix of people that you're actually connected to, you can't start making value judgments about, oh, well, you know, this person is not delivering at this super high level, so therefore they're not useful to the team. And so I'm only going to sequester myself in this space. So that experience at a very early age started me thinking about, well, there's still value to what everyone's bringing and, you have to start practicing the art of listening in a very deep way. Oftentimes, the language and the reference points in which these folks are relaying their stories are so different that they actually require a deep level of concentration and you really have to pay attention. And and I think when I have moved from organization to organization, it was really clear to me in the beginning that having space to listen to people 
was the one of the biggest ways that I could gain trust in the team. Listening is such a deep part of learning that people, when you're learning about an organization, people just automatically assume, wow, he's really listening to me. He's paying attention. He's thinking about what I'm bringing to the table. And I think if you do that individually, because you, you had mentioned that it was interesting to you that you were talking about this group dynamic. Had I not had a pre-COVID-19 experience with my current team in which I was in an office and could have one-on-one, I don't know how I could have engendered a deeper sense of connection with them now. I think it's pretty impossible to do a group experience altogether uh, without having the one-on-one basics. But I think I have to say that a lot of that, and it was pretty intuitive. And I actually did not value my ability to hear others and to just be present for them until I started talking about it with mentors and in therapy and just kind of discounting, well, anyone can listen. You don't have to do anything. You just sit there. And people really reinforced to me that the quality of listening is something that is discernible by most people. And if you are being thoughtful in the way you're responding and absorbing energy and thoughts and concepts from people, it's just such an incredible way to build that space. In a way, um, even though it seems like the epitome of being passive, by sitting and having somebody share with you, that is the, the nuts and bolts building of that space that you need later. But when there is a kind of crisis point that, you know, you maybe there's a, an economic downturn or the crisis we're in now, or there's a difficult situation in which you need to do some kind of behavior correction on the point of a staff member, with that listening space established, you can actually inhabit that space that's helpful for both people. That space where if if I was just really concerned in being friendly with my staff, good vibes between everybody, and then I had to do something serious, in my past, I've found that to be extremely confusing for the staff. They just don't, like, I thought we were all good, and I'm not sure why we now have to talk about layoffs or whatever it is. Or This is a much more meaningful and valued space, I think, for staff and management alike, because they realize uh, this is a space where we talk about problems in a good way. And so any future conversations about these things, they know it's a constructive two-way thing happening. We want to make sure everyone's as supported and uh, empowered as possible in these spaces. What's ringing in my mind is the quality of listening that you mentioned Mm -hmm. and that you said that it might seem quite passive, but it Mm -hmm. seems to me that quality listening or a certain quality of deep listening Mm -hmm. is actually quite an active activity. How do you get to that level of depth in listening? You know, I always would love to be a better listener, and I can envision internalizing what somebody's saying and turning it over in my head and trying to think about it from different perspectives and an intensity of focus. And that's my interpretation But I'm not sure, do you have specific techniques or thoughts about that as you have cultivated that skill? I think in a funny way, it leads back to my creative work. And that's so perfunctory to say, well, being a composer or being someone who works with music, you would be engaged in listening in that point. But it's not the external hearing that we're talking about. In a funny way, when I think about when I'm with my team now and what I'm doing while they're talking, it's not that different from me sitting by myself and the kind of charts I might have in front of me or 
some kind of pre-compositional plan about writing some, some piece I'm working on, there's always a moment where I'm still and I'm trying to hear internally what my imagination uh, and inspiration is forming. And it's almost like tr- that scale and trying to capture one's thoughts, I think, is the basis for trying to listen to someone else's thoughts. And so if you don't practice that internal mode, and you don't have to be a musician, I don't think, to do this, because if you're writing an essay or a paper or a poem or something, you can try and actively form thoughts and force things to happen. Uh, and I think we've all done that under deadline. But I think the best stuff always comes when you're maybe on a walk or if you're just chilling somewhere and, quote, unquote, an idea appears to you. You know, we often think of thoughts as different than sound, but somewhere there's a, a place where those two things come together and that you hear internally these thoughts. I don't see my thoughts as text written on some blank screen. There is some formation of the thought as a spoken form internally. And I think without spending, whether you want to call it, you know, active meditation or reflection or those kinds of things, if you don't practice first that listening internally, uh, you can't do it with someone else. I often joke with my staff, say, are you sure that these meetings are useful to you? Because I don't prepare at all to them. I just show up at 9 o'clock on the Zoom and, and we start talking. But I, I think that there's this other way of preparing, which I'm constantly practicing. What does my internal voice say? And I think if you can't master that, no amount of external conscious tool is going to lead you into a deep place. I mean, I might even say that Whatever tool you use, if it doesn't delve at least into the upper part of a deep conscious behavior, you're not really going to have a sense of gravitas when someone's talking to you. It's going to be not in that space of active listening. You're going to be in that kind of conversational mode where, you know, you're, you're waiting to back something to somebody and you are going back and forth. But that deep listening, it has to be an internal process. And I think there's various ways to get there. There's two really powerful ideas I think are just beautiful. One is that your thought process being auditory, and it just has made me think about how other people's thought process may be visual or maybe text-based, and that likely being rooted or at least connected to your being a musician and being a composer. And yet the other beautiful idea that you just brought out that is really staying with me too is the idea of listening to people as you would listen to a complex piece of music. And when you're listening to a complex piece of music, there's many nuances and you're maybe following a line, but there's so many colors or uh, variations or, or things like that going on, but you're just listening usually. And sure, it's triggering other parts of the brain, at least that's what I find, but really you're focusing on listening, whereas as you mentioned, often when people are listening to somebody else, they're actually formulating responses or formulating thoughts or formulating the to-do lists that are coming out from what they're listening to. And there's this, um, you know, other output that is uh, somewhat distracting from the deep listening. And so correlating the idea of deep listening to music and deep listening to another person is such a beautiful idea. There was a study, in, I think in Oxford, and, you know, maybe 50 years ago, where they experimented with people's ability to notice if someone was looking at them from behind. 
And I think when they did the study, they had a control group that, you know, probability maybe 50-50, whatever, people would just turn around. And it was something like 80% of the time we knew. You can feel it. You can feel it. And I think that that is part of what I'm talking about between the conversational listening and the awareness of somebody else. There's an energy Uh, exchange there, too. Exactly, yes. And I think that to your point that as we're having a conversation and formulating thoughts, we're just aware that that's, that person is not really with us. And I think that in just the mechanics of team building and leadership, that it's really important for the team to know that you're 100% there with them. And if you can do that by listening, I think it means a lot. We're making space for them and making them feel uh, vital to the outcome of, of all the endeavors of the organization. I'm going to shift, and yep. I'm wondering have, how you make the most of your day shifted now that we're in this distancing and isolation time of COVID-19, or have they not changed all that much, really? Well, you know, interestingly, you know, I came aboard on Soundstreams uh, as their leader just only a few months before all of this happened. In a way, there was a, a great need to make the processes with what the organization worked mine right from the beginning. And I have to say that the organization was left to me in, in a very good state, both financially and infrastructure-wise, to the point where the staff was almost completely siloed and independent and worked very hard to produce the concerts we had. And I thought what I could contribute to the growth of SoundStreams was to encourage a kind of communal basis on shared knowledge. So implementing a project management software brought the team together in a real way and having uh, department chats much more frequently. So in a way, the bedrock work of doing uh, those kinds of processes made a very easy transition to us to be in COVID-19 land. The only thing that I would say that has changed the most is the team's a need for one-on-one chats to talk about things that are more of a more personal nature because oftentimes the anxiety of the enormity of what we're trying to achieve, we were planning to be on a European tour in May of 2020 and uh, the tour was going to be very difficult. And now the complexities of dealing with COVID-19 related problems has made it even more stressful So I think that all of the work that we did to team build before this has made these one-on-one chats a little bit more of a pressure release for the staff. And so there's been a safe place for people to come forward and say, I don't know how to do this. And so it's not so much, Heather, that the processes have changed, but the need for that extremely personal stress relief, uh, the, the pressure valve has been really front and center. I can hear how you've got organizational systems into place and support for your team members. What about for you personally? How do you approach your day? How do you organize the things that you need to do in a day that um, make you feel like it's been a great day by the end of the day? That's a little bit more difficult. That's why I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) My, My work ends up being something that tends to spill over past dinner. So I will sit in front of the TV and catch up on a lot of work, which is not ideal. 
But I also am understanding that this transformation of the team, I see as a, a short-term phase that the company's going through. It just unfortunately overlaps with, with this pandemic. So as the team gets more confident in their abilities to work together more deeply and fully, I see that I'll be able to do more of my work during the daytime. But unfortunately, it's really a pretty hectic schedule. I don't really feel like this time has been time of of repose for me. In fact, it's even been more, more ramped up. But luckily, the team has been really great at my age, which is in my early 50s. I feel that had it been an earlier time in my life, I would have been really stressed about not making my to-do list at the end of the day. And now it's like I, I do my best. I reassess at the end of the day, and then I stick what didn't get done yesterday onto today's list, and I just keep kind of keep moving forward. But things get done, and they get done in the time they need to get done. And right now what I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing is I'm investing time in this team building so that they can really do incredible things and that'll leave me to do stuff that will be much more high level and much more fun, quite frankly, for me. You know, there's a bit of a pain period, but, but it'll pass. That's just such a nice way to end. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about how you make the most of your day? I will say that one of the added bonuses of making the most of one's day is being able to share that with people. Telling my wife, oh, hey, this great thing happened today. I, I have to say that I am super blessed that both in New York and Toronto, there are people who are still interested in the work that I do and being able to touch base with them and share things uh, at the end of my career, what I'm going to look back on. And most of it is not going to be the individual triumph. It's going to be those sustained friendships and relationships I was able to make along the way and have a a life that was really full. I thank you, Heather, for being part of that. And I'm so grateful for our friendships. And thank you so much for talking with me for Wide Open Day. It's been really great, Heather. This has been an episode of Wide Open Day. I'm Heather Kelly. Thank you for being here. You can find more podcast episodes and articles at wideopenday.com. Until next time, be well, and I hope you find ways to make the most of your day, whatever that means to you.